Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, the program that brings you news each week on the cutting edge of the big controversy between Darwinian evolution and the design theory or design hypothesis, which is both rooted in scripture and it's also rooted in scientific data. And we're trying to bring the other side that you don't hear in the general media and the public schools and universities. Thank you, Bill Carl, for making this program possible each week. I appreciate your smiling face and your technical prowess. Thanks, Dr. Woodward. You made me scream at my television last night. How was that? Uh, watching a cartoon with my son about dinosaurs, and they show the little jellyfish swimming in mm-hmm. the ocean, and how one day it just crawled up into the land and it was a dinosaur, and I just started screaming at my television. <laughs> Dumb <Stop> TV show! <laughs> well, it just morphed on its own, just yeah. with the, just the forces of nature kind of molding it, massaging The magic of television. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, we do thank our two sponsors, the C.S. Lewis Society, named after the British scientist. started to say scientist. He was a professor. He dealt with the topics of science, but he was a, especially a professor in the area of English literature. But for our purposes and our relevance, he was an outstanding presenter of the truth of creation and the truth of Christ. And so <clears throat> it's our desire to really kind of expose uh, the students of the world, students of the U.S. Uh, campuses, first of all, but also students in overseas campuses, the great news, the evidences, the lines of argumentation that lead to the cure clear conclusion that there is a designer and that there is a God who has made himself known. We also want to thank our other great sponsor up there on US-19 in Tarpon Springs area, but now proliferated all around Tampa Bay with their about six offices, I believe, is St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. Excellence with love in eye care and so many other areas of health care. We will be talking more about some of their great people and their great programs a little bit later in the broadcast. But speaking of great people and great programs in the educational vein, I want to introduce again to our program uh, at the other end of the line on the West Coast. I guess it's probably uh, a little bit earlier in the day for you, Casey Luskin, but we thank you for joining us from the Discovery Institute. Oh, it's wonderful to be on the show with you again, Tom. Thanks. Yes, we appreciate you coming alongside and giving us an update from time to time. Let me just give a little background. Casey Luskin, who has been on our program before, giving us cutting-edge news from the Discovery Institute, which is basically a think tank. It's a what we might call a educational entity in Seattle, Washington, made known especially through the movie Expelled, as Ben Stein was looking for the office <laughs> And finally, successful in finding the office of the Discovery Institute, but they are researching or supporting research and education and um, literally day to day bringing out some of the best new information related to the design hypothesis. But they have a bigger mission than that. And Casey Luskin has been on staff, uh, Casey, for what, about three years now? Yeah, that's right. I've been at Discovery for about three, three and a half years now. And I've if my memory serves me, you have background in your training, your academic training, both in science and in legal studies. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I got my uh, bachelor's and master's in earth sciences from UC San Diego, 
and then I got my law degree from the University of San Diego. And I remember very well meeting you at a science conference that we held here in Clearwater, Florida, back around the year 2000. And you came out all the way from the West Coast to hear Scott Minnick and some other great scientists in the intelligent design movement. That's, of course, how we met. But we've been at many conferences since then. And speaking of conferences, I see that there are more and more meetings. It seems like there are more and more diversity of people getting involved in the design discussion, the design Darwinism discussion. What are some of the more interesting issues that are arising in the educational front? Let's talk about that first, especially the rumblings from Texas. Can you give us a lowdown on that whole situation and where we are now? Sure. Over the last six months or so, the Texas State Board of Education has been revising their Texas science standards, which governs how science and evolution is taught in Texas public schools. And there's been a big debate over whether or not they were going to include basically critical analysis of evolution in the curriculum or not. Um, In January, uh, myself and some others from Discovery Institute attended the Texas State Board of Education meeting where they had hearings and invited six expert scientists to give testimony about how to teach evolution. And three of the experts were basically uh, evolutionists who said that they should teach evolution in basically a one-sided, pro-Darwin-only dogmatic fashion. Um, Three of the other experts, however, were Darwin skeptics, who said that they should teach evolution, including both of its strengths and its weaknesses. And one of those uh, three Darwin skeptics was actually Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute. And so it was very interesting to attend this hearing and hear the contrast between the testimony of the three evolutionists and the three Darwin skeptics and how, you know, what they were saying, what they thought that board should, should teach. Um, what really struck me was really the, I would say, the, the level of humility on the side of the Darwin skeptics who were saying, look, you know, we understand there's evidence for evolution. We should teach that evidence. But let's not forget there's also a whole body of science and scientists who doubt Darwinian evolution and we actually presented to the board uh, peer-reviewed uh, articles, by, four binders of over 100 peer-reviewed scientific articles that discuss some scientific challenges to Darwinian evolution. And you know, we really presented them with a very credible case that, yes, there is a body of science that challenges what's in the textbooks on evolution, and students deserve to hear about this. So then we, we came back to the, the, the board in March of this year, where they made the final decision and they took the final vote. And we were very heartened to see that the board did decide in the end to actually include teaching students about both the evidence for and against evolution. Um, The final science standards that they adopted require students to look at, quote, all sides, unquote, of scientific evidence and critique scientific theories and also to, quote, analyze and evaluate, unquote, uh, certain key evolutionary claims such as mutations and natural selection and common ancestry. And to specifically look at whether or not um, evolutionary explanations can account for observations from the fossil record or the complexity of life. So you know, really these are excellent science standards that in our view are, are really cutting edge progressive science standards in terms of requiring students to look at both sides of the evolution debate. Well that's really significant and extremely encouraging. Have the Darwinists sat there on their sidelines and kind of grumbled? What have they been doing or saying? <laughs> As usual, the, the Darwinists uh, never just sit on the sidelines. Um, you know, after they lost their bid before the Texas State Board of Education, and it was really a bid for censorship. You know, I sat there, especially in January, Tom, listening to some of these, 
you know, these expert evolutionary scientists testify about the science. And what I heard was, you know, it was, what I heard was a game of Texas Hold'em. It was bluffs. They were bluffing to the Texas State Board of Education about the science. Um, I literally heard, uh, you know, one uh, scientist who's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, actually, and who's a biologist at the University of Texas, Austin. I heard him tell the State Board of Education that there is overwhelming correspondence as you build trees of life from, you know, uh, as you build a tree of life from protein to protein sequence, from DNA sequence to DNA sequence. He was literally saying to the board that if you build a tree of life using one protein, there's overwhelming correspondence if you use another protein. And anybody who has, you know, dug into the literature um, on evolutionary tree making knows that that isn't true. That it's very common that when you actually, you know, build a tree using one gene and then you take another gene, you get an entirely different tree. And this is a real problem within the field of evolutionary molecular systematics, is what it's called, um, that there is a lack of correspondence as you go from one tree to the next. And this is a, this is a huge issue. Um, and what was interesting was that the very same day that this, this scientist testified, uh, claiming that there's basically overwhelming agreement among various uh, evolutionary phylogenies, um, a, an article came out on the cover story of the journal New Scientist. And that article was actually titled, Why Darwin Was Wrong About the Tree of Life. Wow. And it discussed about the very fact that different genes are telling different evolutionary stories. That's actually almost an exact quote from the article. And there were scientists in the, in the article that said things like, the tree of life has been, quote, annihilated, unquote. You know, I would really encourage your listeners to go check this article out. It's from the January, uh, I believe around January 21st or so, the issue of New Scientist. And it's really a stunning admission and candidness about how the methods that scientists are using to build the tree of life have failed to build a tree of life. What they get are conflicting trees that don't agree, and they're not able to resolve them. And so, I mean, this came out the very same day that Dr. The Dr. David Hillis from UT Austin testified, uh, and it really said the, said the exact opposite of the bluff that he was making to the board. Because, you know, if you look at the scientific literature, anybody would know that what Dr. Hillis was telling the board was really incorrect. So, um, so you know, the evolutionists, and, and there were other bluffs I'd be happy to talk about if you want to talk about those. But, uh, you know, so what, what happened was, you know, the evolutionists came in, they made these bluffs to the State Board of Education, and then they said there are no weaknesses, literally. I mean, they, we had multiple Darwinists testifying, saying there are no weaknesses whatsoever in evolution. That's, that's, a, that's were, a flagrant were, denial of the reality. How can they get away with that? And we have about 40, 40 seconds left. Well, you know, they're, they're allowed to make whatever arguments they want. Thankfully, there were enough people on the State Board of Education who were open-minded enough, and we presented them, as I told you, with dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed scientific papers that discussed, you know, evidence that called their bluff. I mean, we, ta- we gave them papers discussing conflicts among evolutionary trees. So they knew what the, what the science was actually saying, and thankfully they were able to listen to the truth and, and make a good decision. But, I mean, we can maybe uh, keep talking more at the other end of the break about what they're doing now, now that they've lost their bid for censorship, and now they're trying to make a bid for a power grab. Well, let me just go ahead and remind, if you're just joining us on the broadcast, you're listening to Casey Luskin, 
a representative, a staff member in the very, very well-known uh, think tank out in Seattle, the Discovery Institute, one side of which, the Center for Science and Culture, is pioneering research on intelligent design, education, but especially scientific research on intelligent design. We need to take a quick break. We will be right back with Casey Luskin with more important questions on the topics of Darwin or design. I'm Tom Woodward. Stay with us. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're talking today with Casey Luskin, who is on staff with the Discovery Institute out in Seattle, Washington. We are very fortunate to be able to go to Casey from time to time for updates on the latest news from the world of science and the world of this whole issue of the biological evidence for and against evolution, for and against design. And Casey, you were telling us some amazing things about the situation in Texas where the standards have just been revamped and students, I guess, are going to, starting this year, are going to be able to hear at least some, to some extent, a, an analysis of the, of the strengths and the weaknesses of Darwinian evolution. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah, I mean, that's basically what's going to happen, yeah. And so if you would just go ahead and share the other major story about an attempted bluff by one or more professors during those hearings, we'd love to hear that one, too. Sure, Tom. Well, just to recap, so uh, this year the Texas State Board of Education was revising its science standards on how it's going to teach evolution, and in January, it invited six expert scientists, three Darwin skeptics, and three evolutionists to give testimony on how to teach the subject. And I sat there listening to this hearing where these three evolutionists were testifying, and it was kind of like uh, playing a game of, of poker, where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing things and you know that they're bluffing. And in the last segment, we talked about some bluffs that were made about the claims that there is overwhelming agreement uh, within the tree of life. Um, another expert who made some bluffs was a professor of anthropology at Southern Methodist University, a real diehard evolutionist named Ronald Wetherington. And he testified about the evidence for human evolution. And when I heard his testimony, I was just absolutely aghast at what he was saying. Let me read to you a little quote of what he said. He said that when it comes to human evolution, we have, quote, Arguably the most complete sequence of fossil succession of any mammal in the world, no gaps, no lack of transitional fossils. So when people talk about the lack of transitional fossils or gaps in the fossil record, it absolutely is not true, unquote. So this is supposed to be Wetherington's area of expertise, but we see him really dramatically overstating the evidence as well as failing to acknowledge counter-opinions by experts within his own field. And, for example, um, you know, just a few years ago, in 2004, the very well-known uh, evolutionary biologist, Ernst Mayer, uh, talked about whether or not there are gaps in the record of human origins. And Ernst Mayer stated in his 2004 book, What Makes Biology Unique, that, quote, the earliest fossils of Homo, Homo rudolfensis and Homo erectus, are separated from Australopithecus by a large, unbridged gap. He goes on to say, how can we explain the seeming salvation not having any fossils that can serve as missing links? We have to fall back on the time-honored method of historical science, the construction of a historical narrative, unquote. 
So, I mean, here we have, you know, once again, when you, these evolutionists are going before this government body giving testimony about the evidence, claiming that there are, quote, no gaps, no lack of conditional forms when it comes to human evolution. But then when we dig into the technical scientific literature, we find scientists admitting precisely the opposite. And, you know, I can provide you with, uh, you know, half a dozen other quotes saying a very similar thing about the record of human origins about how it's very fragmented, how there are huge gaps, how, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, there were other uh, bluffs and misrepresentations made by Professor Wetherington. Uh, one, one, another bluff that he made basically said that, you know, every new skull that we find, every new fossil we find basically confirms the evolutionary phylogeny that we previously thought was true. Well, I try to follow the, you know, the scientific evidence and debate over human origins pretty closely. And I know that in 2002, there was a very well-known skull called the Tomai skull that was found. And there, it actually caused a huge uproar because the paleoanthropologists who uh, were commenting on it said that if we accept it as it is, then it actually wreaks havoc, complete havoc with the evolutionary tree um, of human origins. And, and, and it, that's actually an exact quote from a paper by leading paleoanthropologist Bernard Wood, who said that it, quote, plays havoc with the tidy model of human origins, unquote. So we just saw, you know, bluff after bluff after bluff from these evolutionists. Thankfully, the Texas State Board of Education was, was able to see through these bluffs, and they adopted science standards to require students to learn about both the evidence for and against evolution. That is amazing. Uh, Ernst Mayer, now he is, uh, of course, a dean, a top figure. I think he's passed away now, but at the time he was at the pinnacle of the profession of evolutionary biologist, and he made that amazing statement about human evolution. Do you remember the, the name again of that book that he wrote in, or published in 2004? Yeah, it's called What Makes Biology Unique, and what? I believe it was actually his last book written not too long, published not long before he, he passed away. And he, yeah, you're absolutely right, Tom. I mean, Ernst Mayer was one of the most eminent evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, so he's very, very eminent, very influential, and... I mean, there you have it. He's admitting there's 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 a there's large unbridged gaps in the record of human evolution. So, and I appreciate you bringing up these important new news. I mean, these are nuggets of incredible importance and excitement for us because this is fresh, as it were, out of the uh, the lab or out of the publishing of very cutting edge information. And I know that there is a blog. If you could just tell us a little bit about the blog, the address for the Discovery Institute news blog that you sometimes post on yourself, and then what kinds of articles have come up there recently, not not including yours. We'll get to that later. Sure. Well, uh, the website is evolutionnews.org. That's www.evolutionnews.org. And, yeah, we cover lots of current events, including this entire Texas situation. We covered it in a lot of detail and if you don't mind, Tom, there's one last little story I'd like to tell about Texas. Sure. If we have a minute. Yeah, go, go two minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the Texas, the Texas debate, this whole debate in Texas over how they were going to teach evolution was really quite instructive in how the evolutionists promote their ideas to the public. You know, when they go to the public, they basically put on a united front, and they say there's no weaknesses whatsoever in evolution, even though we know that you know, a lot of science contradicts what they were, what they were saying. Um, and when, the, when they finally lost their bid before the State Board of Education to censor from students any of the scientific challenges to evolution, sort of pretending that they just don't exist, 
they were not satisfied. When they lost their bid for censorship, they have now actually submitted bills into the Texas state legislature that will try to remove any authority of the Texas State Board of Education to set the curriculum or adopt textbooks for Texas public schools. So essentially, now that they lost their bid for censorship, they want to take power away from the democratically elected State Board of Education, and it's basically a power grab. So, you know, if they can't convince the uh, elected officials to accept their arguments for censorship, well, then by golly, we're just going to... We're just going to take away the power of the elected officials and put it into the hands of bureaucrats. Wow. And what's going on here is, you know, it's the parents, it's the tax-paying and voting parents who elected the State Board of Education that decided to require critical analysis of evolution. And apparently the evolution lobby, look, if, if, if the tax-paying voting parents don't do what they want, then they're just going to take the power away from them and put it in the hands of bureaucrats and hopefully, you know, indoctrinate the next generation so that the next generation, maybe the next generation of tax-paying and voting parents can be trusted, you know, to, to vote for people uh, once they've been indoctrinated in evolution. It's really just a very sad story in, in trying to uh, take away uh, both free speech mm-hmm. and the democratic process in order to get what they want. Yeah. Our guest today, Casey Luskin, out at the Discovery Institute on the West Coast up in Seattle, Washington. Casey, we're going to be going for a moment uh, here into your own writings on the evolutionnews.org blog. I might admit publicly, I'm going to admit to something, Bill Carl. I go every day or almost every day to this blog. I mean, this is like my lifeblood. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting to talk to one of my heroes today, one of my intellectual, cutting edge, um, you know, informing me daily. I mean, this is as, as good as it gets. No pressure, Casey. I'm sorry, Casey. And Tom, if I can throw something in there, sometimes you actually email very helpful comments and corrections to our blog. So oh, very, so very, very minor. Have some very helpful input uh, <laughs> when I when I miss a, a typo or something like that. Yeah, well, so, so yeah, we won't we won't mention those. Those are very few and far between. We yeah. uh, we're going to be talking about your really interesting articles. I think we can go ahead and mention it. We don't have uh, that much time to get into it in this segment. But uh, again, we're talking to Casey Luskin, Discovery Institute, uh, works with people all around the United States and around the world to give them the best possible up-to-date and accurate information on this controversy between Darwinism and design. I'm looking right now at a printed out from my printer, that is, a few minutes ago, helping students answer a professor's challenge to, quote, find a fact that supports intelligent design. And in about one minute or so, tell us about what led to the answers that we're going to go into. But what did you what 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 was happening in this classroom that led you to even get involved? Sure. Well, basically, there is a university biology class. I won't say exactly where because I'd sort of like to protect the the innocent students that came to us asking these questions. Um, And they came to us saying that their professor had given them a challenge to find a fact that supports either evolution or intelligent design. And I, I think that the, it's, from what I could see, the challenge was probably given in an authentic and genuine kind of way, you know, wanting students to go out there and do some research. Um, and, you know, it seems pretty legitimate. But we got about, uh, I don't know, three, maybe four requests from students from this class, uh, all asking the same thing. You know, they were trying to find a fact that supports intelligent design, and they wanted some help because the, the fact was supposed to be backed by peer-reviewed scientific literature. 
Um, and so I did my best to answer the student's question and ended up posting my response that I gave them uh, on evolutionnews.org, uh, where I talked about um, not just one fact, but a whole bunch of facts that support intelligent design, and then documented a number of peer-reviewed scientific papers that, that support uh, the evidence. So yeah, uh, we can talk about it now but, uh, well, later, well, but that, that's basically what happened. Right, yeah. We're talking to Casey Luskin. We're going to be right back with him after a quick break. He is out at the Discovery Institute, and he is a walking science encyclopedia, the kind of person we love to have on our program. Right, Bill Carl? So we're going to be back with him in just a few seconds. We, we're going to be talking about a few facts, that, well, lots of facts that he's dug up that will help to answer this professor's challenge. You're listening to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward. We will be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. You're listening to Darwin or Design, where we tackle each week the great big, really culturally biggest issues that you can really ever approach, and that is the issue of origins in the dimension of the universe, dimension of life itself, and especially humanity. Where did we come from? What is our purpose? Do we have a purpose? What is, where does the evidence point? And, of course, we couldn't do this without great sponsors each week standing in as it were supporting this by their financial help. We do want to thank the C.S. Lewis Society, an organization I've been having the privilege of leading and developing for the last 20 years, based up at Trinity College of Florida. Speaking of Trinity College of Florida, we do have now on display those fossils that were provided thanks to our other sponsor, the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, which provided a grant so that we could purchase and collect from all over the U.S. and even around the world beautiful fossils, some of them dinosaur fossils. We have another one that's due in in just a week or so from Colorado, a 48-inch Camarasaurus femur, an incredible a fossil to have at Trinity College, and about, oh, I'd say 60 or 65 fossils on display now in three beautiful cabinets built by our own director of operations, Alan Thompson. So if you would like to come out and see those fossils, I'd love to give you a guided tour. Just call me, Tom Woodward, on my cell phone. That'd probably be the easiest way, 727-642-8574. That's 727-642-8574. Be glad to set that up for you. And also we have uh, the wonderful support, as I said, of the St. Louis Cataract and Laser Institute. St. Luke's, through its very highly skilled staff, uh, headed by Dr. James Gills and Dr. Pitt Gills, are able to provide outstanding service for so many areas of ophthalmology, including glaucoma problems, cataract situations, uh, even optometry. They have six optometrists on staff. They can really fill your need for the up-to-date um, quality glasses, bifocals, trifocals, contact lenses, you name it. And, of course, they have this incredible intraocular lens, crystal lens, which gives op optimal focus, both short-range and long-range, if you do ha decide to use their facility for a cataract care uh, procedure. So give them a call at 727-938-2020. At 727-938-2020. Casey Luskin, on the other end of the line, out in Seattle, Washington, with the Discovery Institute, uh, is really tackling some of the big current issues and questions in relation to what Discovery Institute is 
dealing with and talking about. And I think you were in the place of giving us an overview of your answer to the students in this biology class who are really clamoring for some facts and some approaches to how you can support intelligent design. Can you fill us in on that? Sure. So as we were talking about, we had about three or four students from a biology class at a university email us at Discovery Institute asking for help to meet their professor's challenge to, quote, find a fact, observation data that supports evolution or intelligent design. And to qualify as a scientific theory, um, the professor said that ID had to first meet the following criteria, and this is what he said, that one, it must be supported by a large amount of data, observations in the physical world, and it must have broad application to explain a wide range of phenomena, and two, it must provide a framework that allows the development of novel hypotheses, questions about nature. Um, so I said, you know, as far as their question, what is a fact that supports intelligent design, my answer was where to begin. Uh, I said that there was a lot of facts, but um, some of the, uh, the specific evidence that we got into was started off basically with the evidence for specified and complex information in our DNA. Mm -hmm. And I talked about some of the uh, work of molecular biologist Douglas Act uh, that was published in the Journal of Molecular Biology that did what are called mutational sensitivity tests on proteins, where basically you mutate uh, certain amino acids in a protein or in an enzyme and try to figure out how that affects the protein's function or what's called the reactivity of the enzymes. And, and what you're really testing is how tightly specified does the sequence of amino acids have to be in this enzyme in order for it to function properly. And what Dr. Axe found is that it actually has to be extremely tightly specified. Um, basically, you have to have you know, only a very limited number of amino acid sequences would produce a, would yield a functional protein. And according to his work, the odds of finding a functional protein in this case could be as low as 1 in 10 to the 77th which is pretty darn low. And the implication of that is that, you know, uh, according to evolution, uh, you know, evolution has to proceed in a step-by-step -step fashion. Mm -hmm. So if it's very difficult to find any functional protein sequence out there in sort of all the possible protein sequences, amino acid sequences in a protein, then the odds of getting a functional protein are very, very low, too low to be arrived at by sort of the blind trial and error method of Darwinian evolution. And so Axe's work carries a lot of uh, very heavy implications both for evolution and conversely for intelligent design because when you find these very unlikely sequ functional sequences, what you're finding are high levels of specified and complex information. And according to the work of ID theorists like William Dembski, specified and complex information is basically a hallmark or a signature of intelligent design. Um, and so when we find these highly unlikely patterns that, 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 uh, or these highly unlikely events that match an independent pattern, that is how we detect design. And so, you know, looking at this work of Dr. Axe, I would say we're finding the very kind of specified complexity through empirical studies that is predicted by intelligent design. And so this was sort of the, the main fact that I gave to these students. Um, but, you know, I wasn't content to stop there. So we, we talked about um, how ID explains the data in about 10 or so different fields after that. Our guest today, Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute. 
Casey, as you're telling about this interaction with these students at an unnamed campus, it appears to me that they maybe hadn't been exposed that much to the arguments for design. Did you get any feel from them as to whether they had you know, read any books or seen Unlocking the Mystery of Life or anything like that? Yeah, you know, I did not get that feel. It did not seem like they knew very much about this um, topic. And, you know, I'll give you a little anecdote here. Uh, very recently, I actually was the, given the opportunity to uh, sort of lead or participate in a classroom discussion at the University of Washington. And I actually uh, was very uh, heartened and, 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 and flattered by the invitation. The professor who uh, taught the class was openly, you know, hostile to intelligence design, but I would say he was a very nice and thoughtful, thoughtful guy. And one of the questions that he asked the students to actually go around and tell was what had they heard or where had they heard about either intelligence design or evolution prior to taking this class. And almost every student said, well, they'd heard about evolution in high school biology or maybe from some TV program. And they'd heard about intelligence design, you know, maybe they, they saw it once on the Internet, but that was all they knew. I mean, these students, these were, you know, about 20 undergraduate students uh, from a variety of different majors at the University of Washington, and most of them knew very little about intelligence design. There were a couple who had studied it on their own, but, you know, I think by and large, if folks don't take the time to go out and study this issue for themselves, they aren't going to hear about it. They aren't going to hear about it in school, that's for sure. And if they do, it's probably going to be a caricature. I mean, I was very, this professor should really be commended for inviting somebody uh, from Discovery Institute to give his students sort of, you know, uh, a very straight talk about intelligent design, um, because otherwise, you know, who, where else are they going to hear it from? So, and as you said, you know, there's some great videos out there unlocking the mystery of life, but I guess, you know, a lot of students, they just don't have access to that information. I can't agree more with what you're saying. Our guest today on the program, Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute on Darwin or Design. I want to just add my own little quick story, if I can remember the details pretty much. Uh, From my speaking at Princeton University just two months ago, I actually, before I went and gave those three talks on the campus, I sent up something of a survey. And the survey was very simple. It was like half a page. And I asked them at the end of their the section where I was getting their opinion, I was asking these students what books and what videos you have seen on this issue of intelligent design. And I actually only listed the two Behe books, Darwin's Black Box, The Edge of Evolution. And then I listed these two famous videos, Unlocking the Mystery of Life and The Privileged Planet. Casey, guess what they, how they answered. How many students do you think, for example, had seen Unlocking out of 55 that took the questionnaire? Oh, boy. Uh, was it 10%? I hope it was 10%. I would hope it was 10%. It was 2%. One, oh, out, no. one out of the 50 had seen Unlocking. Well, the good news is I provided free copies for every student that wanted one of Unlocking the Mystery of Life, and I think about 40 or 50 copies of that was taken, 20 copies of The Privileged Planet were taken. And the good news, the students loved them so much that uh, the following week, one of the students, or I guess it was a couple actually, decided to sponsor their own showing of those videos on the campus. Isn't that cool? That's great. Yeah. Well, there you go, Tom. So it's we're making progress. Time. Yeah, one Ivy League university at a time. There so you go. <laughs> uh, in, in the segment that's coming, we have about a minute left. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, – well, l- let me just hold off and just kind of tease our listeners today on Darwin or Design. I'm going to go ahead and set it up for you to answer the question. But the question is this. 
and I hear it voiced all the time by opponents of intelligent design, there is really nothing theoretical about a theory. I mean, what by that I mean the, the Darwin side often will say Darwinian theory is not really a conjecture. It's really solid. It's based on unified testability or having been tested and all the evidence lines up and there's just a tremendous solidity. So don't you dare even use the word theory to imply any doubt, any tentativeness, any questioning. And I would like to at least briefly bring in the Casey Luskin answer to this argument, at least implied argument sometimes from the Darwin side, that when we talk about Darwinian theory, that it's just a theory? No, that doesn't qualify because a theory is, by definition, solid explanation of the facts. Casey Luskin will give that answer when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. Thanks for listening. Be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. You're listening to Darwin or Design, and in addition to that, you're listening to Casey Luskin, one of my favorite informers. I guess that sounds like somebody who's involved in a spy network, but I guess this is a public spy network. Double agent. That's right. Well, no, no double agent. He's a great, uh, as it were, advocate and very well-informed advocate of the design hypothesis, but is a gracious, um, I guess, interactor, I could put it that way, with the other side. Uh, Casey, I, re- admire, I admire and respect what you have done for years in engaging in a respectful and thoughtful and really just completely high integrity way with the other side, our friends, uh, sometimes our opponents, but we try to make friends along the way, the Darwin side. So uh, my hats, my hats, my one and only hat goes off to you. I guess I do wear two hats as professor and director of C.S. Lewis Society, but uh, all of my hats that apply go off to you. Casey Luskin, thanks for joining us and letting me interview you now about the idea of a theory. Often people will say the Darwin theory is just a theory, and the Darwinists come back and say, well, the word theory means a solid explanation. There's nothing iffy about it. How did you handle that part of your answer? Sure. Well, I appreciate your kind words, Tom. Uh, you know, so, so let, let's take this a step back here. A lot of times we hear uh, people who are Darwin skeptics. They like to say, well, evolution is just a theory. Um, I don't necessarily recommend using that line to express your doubt about evolution. I think there are much better ways to express your doubt about evolution, and and we could spend more time talking about that. But when people say that evolution is just a theory, um, sometimes the evolutionists will come back and basically scold them by saying, well, don't you know that in the scientific community that theory really means a well-established explanation? So you're just ignorant about the true meaning of theory because you're trying to say that a theory is sort of like a conjecture or a guess when really a theory means a well-established explanation. So you, if you say evolution is just a theory, well, then that means that evolution is, is, is a very well-established and solid scientific uh, explanation, not, not something that has any weaknesses. And the question is, when evolutionists sort of scold Darwin skeptics for, for making that, uh, for using that line, are they, are they using the word theory properly? Is this appropriate? Well, it turns out that the word theory actually can have a bunch of different meanings, and this sort of causes some com- semantic confusion 
on this issue. Uh, theory can mean uh, simply a conjecture or a guess or an idea that has not been very well tested. Um, and that's sort of what I would say the more uh, common usage of the word theory. Now, in the scientific community, the, the technical, strictly speaking, the technical definition of theory is supposed to mean a well-established and well-tested explanation. But when we actually look at the way that scientists use the word theory, even in their technical scientific literature, we find that they use it both ways. And so to show this, um, I actually did a PubMed search of the, the, the definition of the word, I'm sorry, let me take that back. Um, I actually did a PubMed search on the term or the phrase new theory. Because if scientists always use the word theory, supposedly, to mean a well-tested and well-established explanation, um, then you should not find the phrase new theory in the scientific literature. It just shouldn't be there, because a new theory, obviously, is sort of a new idea that has not been subjected to lots of tests or, um, or experimental verification. And yet, when we search for new theory in the scientific literature, you find it all over the, all over the place. I mean, the, the phrase new theory is extremely common. And as I did this search, I found a number of instances where it was very clear that scientists were using the word theory in the sense of using it to, to describe something that is a, basically a conjecture or a guess or sort of an unverified hypothesis. So the bottom line is that the word theory can be, is used by scientists in sort of both ways, both in the, the sense of meaning a new, untested idea or in the sense of meaning a very well-established and well-tested idea. And so this causes some semantic confusion. So I still don't recommend that people use the phrase, you know, evolution is just a theory, because a lot of times for scientists, theory does mean a well-tested explanation. And so you don't want to necessarily, you know, cause confusion uh, by using the term. And the confusion really stems from the fact that this, this word theory can have multiple definitions. It has so many possible meanings. Our guest today, Casey Luskin, and the Discovery Institute, which is the leading think tank in the world, which is sponsoring actual lab research on intelligent design. And, of course, you're listening to Darwin or Design, and our approach today is to get the latest information on those two sides of this question. The Darwin design hypotheses, the two of them, are doing, as it were, a rhetorical battle. They're struggling to kind of make their case in front of the public, in front of students, in front of uh, professors and the media. One of the things, Casey, I understood from reading your recent posting on evolutionnews.org is that there are a lot of people out there that are kind of laboring under old information. In other words, they have ideas stuck in their brains that are that is really or that that are really out of date. I'm thinking of the question that came up in relation to animal biology, because in your in helping those students when they were asking you for you know help in finding facts that defend intelligent design as a rival theory, some people were questioning whether animal biology really has facts in the area of vestigial organs. If you could explain for us what a vestigial organ is how the Darwin side has approached this traditionally, and then zoom in on the appendix, that little dangling organ that some of us have actually had removed through surgery. Sure. Well, so to go back, you know, this was the students from this university biology class that emailed us right. wanting to answer their professor's challenge to find a fact that supports intelligent design. And, or they could find a fact that supports evolution. And the professor actually, in his uh, 
in his little uh, syllabus sheet that he gave to the students, said that you know one fa- one type of fact they could find to support evolution would be vestigial organs, which he called useless. Um, and uh, and he gave the example of the appendix, but then he said that actually they can't use the appendix in their in their answer because he'd already used that ex- as an example. So they had to find a different uh, vestigial or useless organ, which he said is something that quote does not seem to have any purpose unquote or is quote useless unquote. Well, I mean, this really just shows how deeply rooted some of the Darwinian urban legends are. You know, so a vestigial organ is supposedly something that is a holdover from our evolutionary past that um, we no longer need. Basically, it's something that our ancestors used, but we do not use uh, because we've sort of outgrown it in our evolution. And so, uh, you know, there's been for a long time this idea that the appendix which is obviously an organ that, that sometimes can get inflamed and infected, and then uh, we, we humans remove it, and, and we can go on living without the appendix. Well, you can go on living without a lung, uh, you know, missing one lung, missing one kidney. Uh, you know, you can even, some people even have parts of their brain removed, and they go on living. That doesn't mean that, you know, everything is optimal, but because of this evolutionary presumption that we are the result of an unguided, random, and blind, purposeless process of Darwinian evolution that sort of, you know, is a clumsy mechanism that sometimes leaves accidents and, and holdovers that we don't need, um, there has been this evolutionary presumption that our bodies are filled with useless and vestigial or junk organs. Um, and because scientists for many years didn't know what the appendix did, they knew we could live without it, uh, but because they didn't know what it did, under their evolutionary worldview, their evolutionary paradigm, they assumed that, therefore, it was just a functionless vestigial organ that did not seem to have any purpose. And, well, it turns out that when we actually study the appendix, it most certainly does have function. It has an immunofunction where it actually can uh, remove uh, toxins from the body. Um, and there's been some very interesting studies that have been published on this. One was uh, there was actually a press release in Science Daily um, and an article in Scientific American talking about the immunofunction of the appendix. Um, it can also be a safe house for good bacteria, the kind of bacteria that aids our digestive system. So, you know, the appendix most certainly does have a function. You can live without it, but um, I've actually heard at one point somebody who's an immunologist told me that there have been studies that have shown that if you don't have your appendix, you are actually at risk, at a higher risk for certain types of cancer, because, uh, and basically, you know, colon-type cancer, uh, because the appendix obviously removes toxins, and having those in your body can increase your risk of certain types of cancer. So, I mean, this is very, very interesting. Uh, so, this goes back to the, the, the philosophical idea of vestigial organs. Is it, a, is it a winning idea? <laughs> is it a winning uh, concept in science? I think the answer is no. Uh, when we look at um, uh, uh, the history of vestigial organs, we are continually finding that they aren't vestigial, that they aren't leftovers that don't, that don't have a purpose or don't have a function. We actually end up finding that they do have a function. I'll tell a quick story. Before you go to that story, our guest today from the West Coast is Casey Luskin with the Discovery Institute. Casey, give us a story. Sure. So a couple years ago, I was giving a talk, and after the talk, a gentleman came up to me and told me that back in the 50s, his mother was having problems with her thyroid. And scientists at the time, they didn't know exactly what the thyroid did. They didn't understand that it regulated our metabolism. And so because of their evolutionary preconceptions, they thought that because they didn't know what it did, that therefore it must be just some leftover, useless evolutionary holdover that we don't need, a vestigial organ. 
And so they actually irradiated this woman's thyroid, mm. thinking that this would solve her problem. Well, obviously, it didn't solve her problem. It made it much worse because thyroid is an integral part of, of our metabolic system and, and regulating our, our bodies. And, and this caused huge problems for her. So I would say that this evolutionary idea of vestigial organs has actually done great damage in the field of medicine. You know, the Hippocratic Oath that says, do no harm. Well, people operating under evolutionary assumptions have done a lot of harm to people by removing what they, or, or, or destroying what they thought are vestigial organs. And the same argument, Tom, applies to the concept of junk DNA, where if we don't know what certain DNA in our body does, evolutionists have assumed that it's junk. Well, guess what we found in the last few years? This is not vestigial junk DNA. This DNA has function. As a matter of fact, the junk DNA might actually be the big story in our bodies of what regulates genes production, what actually encodes many of the differences between species. Junk DNA, rather than being the junk, it's actually the gem. And it's, it's amazing how this idea of vestigial and junk organs has just misled scientists, and, and it's purely an evolutionary idea. Yeah, let me just jump in and, and read something from your post on evolutionnews.org. We're talking today with Casey Luskin with the Discovery Institute, a real walking encyclopedia on the latest news on Darwin and design. And I'm looking at this post from Lyco maybe a week or two weeks ago, helping students answer a professor's challenge to find a fact. And you bring out four things that ID theorists observe about intelligent designers. Number four is intelligent agents typically create functional things. Based on that, we can, says Casey Luskin, develop a prediction. Much so-called junk DNA will turn out to perform valuable functions. And that's exactly what we found out. So my hat's off to Casey Luskin for a great pair of articles. As I said a few moments ago, you can access those articles on evolutionnews.org. Casey, we have about a minute left. Tell us really quickly what your excitement is now, either in regard to um, Steve Meyer's book coming out. Uh, I understand Richard Sternberg, uh, Sternberg is working on a book. What are you excited about in the, in the near future? Yeah, I think that you just uh, named it. Those are two very exciting things. Uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer is coming out with a book later this year called Signature in the Cell, where he's going to make the case for intelligent design at the level of information in our DNA uh, looking a lot at the origin of life and whether blind and unguided chemical processes can produce the information in our bodies. And then your, uh, Richard Sternberg is also doing a very interesting uh, book project. I believe it's actually going to be related to uh, sort of the junk DNA notion and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of exciting things coming out. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, thanks for mentioning it, Tom. Evolutionnews.org is a great place to stay tuned to these new developments. Absolutely. We're so thankful for the opportunity to bring back to our program Casey Luskin, Discovery Institute. Casey, have a great week out there. Thanks so much, Tom. You too. And thank you for listening to Darwin or Design on AM 570 and 910. We'll see you next week.